Hello and welcome to episode 131 of the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago and with me to my left, about 30 degrees directly yeah. in, in three and a half feet line of sight. I, I can smell him and he smells good. It's the one and only Shane Beeps. I smell like green chili sauce. Um, no, it's it's good to see you, Stanislav. It's weird. We're making direct eye contact. <laughs> like, they're just like looking at each other now. Very uncomfortable. Well, now it's extremely uncomfortable for me to sit across the table and see you two staring at each other <laughs> with such uh, admiration, mutual admiration and respect. That's right. So we are in the Godfather Dave Harberger's basement. Yeah. yeah. In beautiful, chilly Chicago, Illinois. Chilly. Okay, I, it's 90 degrees outside, but it is 60 degrees in my basement, apparently. Yeah, we should take a picture of your thermostat just to prove to the world that your basement is freezing. It's it's brisk. I, I rolled in about 3.30 this afternoon. My wife and I got in uh, from the outskirts of Chicago. Stan came over. We, we riled up Dave's children. And then we had tacos. And yeah, now we're recording a podcast. Pretty good tacos. Yeah, they were good. Yeah, today I learned that Dave just feeds his kids pure maple syrup. For dinner, that's it. <laughs> just when you want it to be good, it. it's just maple syrup, pancakes, and eggs, and that's all they get. <laughs> Breakfast for dinner. Dad was by himself. That is tasty. On this week's episode, we spend even more time exploring the ins and outs of modern and the ongoing impact of Modern Horizons Two on the format. There's just so many decks to play, and frankly, I think we want to try them all. So we'll kick off with a look at the mocks, modern results, along with several other tournaments that happened this past weekend, then follow up with our experience trying out more emerging top decks from recent competitive environments, including things like Rakdos Luris, Hammer Time, Enchantress, maybe more. You, you left out the amount of time that we're just going to spend weeping on air since this is the first time that we've seen Shane in person since December of 2019. Yeah, yeah. And then we'll pro- from the live episode at Mystery Street? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. That was the last time I think I saw him in person. No. Yeah. No, we, because, no, was that, was, that was like a year after that, right? No. Are you it kidding me? It was not. Oh my God. I think it was. Wow. <laughs> I really thought that was like the year before. We didn't have a podcast. We had, we were on episode three a year before. Oh my we gosh. We were trying right. to do. Like, time, yeah, time is, time is devious. See, point. now he is getting choked up now that he's really oh, thinking about the enormity of it. Fireworks. Yes, uh, there are fireworks in Chicago. Uh, everyone on Next Door right now is posting, is that gunshots? <laughs> uh, but Stan and I are going to be playing uh, in the background as Dave goes through his you know, mm-hmm. deck dive. So if you hear the, the sound of flicking, that's just me <laughs> kiblering it over here. Dave, should we be recording in person more often? This is kind of this is kind of nice. It's nice to be able to see you in person. I think is, maybe we cool? could. Shane might feel a little left out if we do that our editor is going to be like please no this is going to be this is going to be an audio disaster i'm sure but it's worth it for the lulls we'll try before the whole episode really starts we should get through some housekeeping yeah shout out to the newest patron to join the dive down nation steve bo bevo thank you very much for your support also big thanks to young lewin from germany for leaving a very kind review on apple podcasts yep uh patreon patreon's good let's talk about patreon for a second i feel like we haven't gone in do you want to get the weeping in now because yeah, you're, the weep, you're the, off the track for a minute let's save it for the wind down 
that's how we wind down around this place. You guys <laughs> tell me kids, they do wind down by crying. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Patreon. I feel like we haven't gone over some of the good deeds of Patreon recently. Uh, one of the most important things is we do ex- like early content for folks at the five bucks and above tiers. A CEO, Bob, had a special request for the recorded video. Like, so, you know, we, we stream this every Sunday night is when we typically record we mostly stream it. We're not streaming tonight. Oh yeah, we're not. Yeah, we're not streaming tonight because it's way too hard to do this in the same room. It would make much sense. But anyway, yeah. If you want to get, we post that uh, the day after on YouTube. Almost always, uh, we post the episode as soon as we get it from our editor uh, up on the Patreon. Uh, usually, maybe a half day or a full day before it goes live to the nation. Yeah, our live our live video. It's kind of like the Graham Norton show because we got like a cast of couch full of celebrities from america and the uk <laughs> and it's like jude law telling stories about playing magic that you only get if you're a patron yeah it's top secret uh but there's also of course the the swag the awesome play mat that goes out the uh, pins and stickers and custom tokens and things like that so if you have not already if you want to support us if you want to keep us going head on over to Patreon dot com slash the dive down most importantly even just a buck an episode you get into our awesome super secret slack server the awesome dive down nation the only place that i want to talk about magic and the only place i do talk about magic with uh, all my buds there so head on over to patreon and help us out if you want and if not support somebody else and finally the dive down is brought to you in part by manatraders.com the best rental service on magic online we believe modern horizons 2 it's hot. What can you say? It's hot, everybody. But um, I rented the decks that I played this week from them. Shane and Stan did as well. And uh, if you want to sign up, check out manatraders.com. Put in code the dive down, all one word, lowercase. Dave, you got the code wrong. I got the code wrong? It's, oh, I did get the code wrong. It's the sorry, dive everybody. down 2021. But listeners, delete what you just put into the little coupon code box. It's the dive down 2021. Yeah, we forgot they updated it. So the dive down 2021 to get uh, 15% off your first two months of a subscription rental service. Manatraders.com. Thank you so much. I got to pull it together. I'm messing up. We're here in person. I'm staring at Stan when he's trying to give me hand signals. I don't even know. I don't know. It's real weird. I'm used to you guys being talking heads in a box. I think we could get used to this, though. I mean, yeah, now once we move to our palatial new compound where we're going to be just generating content 24-7, y'all. I know. Can that be a new stretch goal on Patreon where we all move to Door County? Yeah, I love Door County. It will probably be pretty cold in the winter, uh, but uh, that's a good time to generate a lot of content. It's true. Um, sure, we'll put out a stretch goal of, I don't know. 10K? I think $20,000. We get to 20K an episode. You will move in together with our wives into a compound, into kind of like an ashram thing. Yes. And (laughs) we'll create content for you all the time. A cabal. I promise, but. We'll call it the cabal. Yeah. The Dorco cabal. Yeah, I like it. All right, with all that out of the way, though, Shane, I would say that you're at the news desk, but we're sitting at the same table. Yeah. I'm at the content table. It, it's the north side of the table. <laughs> Just to be clear, at the compound, it's going to be a lot cooler than a content table. It's going to be more <laughs> like a content lab. Or oh, something yeah, like a lab. That. Uh, makerspace. So, uh, yeah, I've got the breakdown this week. And so what we're going to do here is try, let's, let's try to pull this together a little bit. And we're going to talk about a few modern events. And they're interesting. They, they happened at very 
similar but different and nuanced ways of playing ma- uh, modern magic online right now. We had the Mox Season 1 Inaugural Champions Showcase. We had the an Insight Modern 5K, so in, uh, Insight uh, Esports had one of their sort of premier level events on uh, through MTG Melee. Then we had two modern challenges as well this weekend. So we had a, a, a few different tiers and a few different uh, levels of play that I think all will continue to solidify and give us a view into the emerging and ever-changing Modern Horizons 2 modern metagame. Say that three times fast, along with a, ra- a, mas- a Rasno mandicular calendar as more nmr decay day snack car thank you stan so let's start with the mox season one and so what exactly is this champions showcase basically it's a 70k prize pool that's uh what maybe that's almost as much as the uh what worlds is this this year uh no take that's a different podcast altogether 70k prize pool 20k to the winner people in this event and there's eight people okay So people were absolutely testing and bringing what they thought was the best deck for the weekend. And these eight competitors were from a variety of qualifying events and different formats from season one of 2021 Magic Online Premier Play. Yeah. One thing to point out is that these small player pool metagames can be pretty weird, especially since a lot of these players know each other by name or by reputation. And so there might be some kind of next-level metagaming going on where people are expecting one person to bring a certain type of deck because they are known for being a certain type of player. I don't recognize these people's names as much, but for sure if these people are all grinders, they know each other pretty pretty well. Yeah. And so um, you know, there's probably some of that going on. So the really interesting thing here, let's go through the top eight yeah. really quick. I'll read out what the decks were. So we had Ryan Haddad, Slasher21 on – is it Blitz? with uh, DRC, as you guys talked about last week. A lot of the decks are running Dragon's Rage Channeler now. Basically, instead of Sprite Dragon. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And Bauble over Opt is kind of like where the whole thing is at. Uh, Yuki Ichikawa, Triosk on Teamer Footfalls. We had Max Mick on 4C, Four Color Footfalls. We had Dominic Prozac on Is It Blitz. Francisco Sanchez on Mardu Shadow. Nathan Stoyer on Four Color Footfalls, Max Revort on Is It Blitz, and finally Fiona Way on Rakdos, Aggro, Mid, Rock, whatever we're calling that deck. Yeah, and so it's interesting, I think, to point out perhaps that Fiona Way came in as the modern champion for this mock. So like everyone came in sort of as the legacy or the limited or the standard, or there was a couple like open slots. So Fiona, maybe uh, they are a modern specialist, but that's how they came in uh, into this championship. And yeah, so this is not a huge metagame and there's only eight players, but what we're only seeing three decks here, right? Two Rakdos, one of them was shadow. One was not shadow. Three is it blitz and three footfalls decks of different kinds. Cascade footfalls decks. Yeah. No copies of Urza saga. Here at all. Yeah. I mean, so like Dave said, I think there's a, an interesting discussion that is probably more nuanced than we need to have for this podcast because we have a lot of other content to cover. But there's a certain thing that, you know, if everyone knows Urza Saga is really powerful, then playing it maybe exposes you to being hated out by artifact or enchantment hate. I mean, I've certainly been seeing a lot of it 
in the leagues and, and, and things like that. Maybe they, or maybe they discovered that it wasn't the way they thought they were going to win this tournament. It wasn't the highest raw power level that they wanted to bring. And so I think that that's something that you can look at these decks and say, is this just the way that a pro wants to win? Or do they think they had an edge in the, in the, the very small player pool here? One thing I think is interesting is that it doesn't seem like these particular decks have any hate cards that are directly pointed at Urza's Saga. No. Well, I, I mean, we're looking at copies here of Endurance, Force of Vigor. Yeah, three Force of Vigor is definitely something that... What else are they really targeting? Yeah, I don't want to see that. Blood, three Blood Moon. I mean, there's definitely some. There's four Wear Tear, which is actually something that people have been talking a lot about. And let's see, four Wear Tear in... The Max Mix four color football deck, for instance, like you said, stand three force of vigor, four wear tear. It's it's interesting that maybe, like you said, Stan is like there. We saw we saw some of these cards out there, so maybe people were just being like, I don't want to get shattering speed. I don't want to have you know destroy target artifact. I got shattering speed speed three times in a league recently, and I was like, well, that card is certainly not great yeah. against the deck I played. I was playing four of them in the deck that I was playing this week, or four in the sideboard. So. What I think is interesting is the amount of teamer footfalls or just foot, footfalls deck we saw in general. Because, yes. but it doesn't really surprise me because of the players we had here. Like this is essentially a control combo deck. Like if you consider casting a single card, a combo. So just a lot. Of, it's a lot of interaction to stop what the other person is doing, and then really easily getting a couple of four four rhinos rhinos down. So it's kind of like, what a control combo tempo ish style deck. Just getting enough uh, click. Cl- clear it clarity on the battlefield to keep getting your rhinos through. Um, and I think that's the kind of deck that great, like great players might gravitate towards where like I can stop what my opponent is doing and then just have the battlefield clear for my rhinos and win the game. I, I have a little bit of a hard time thinking this is the best deck, like just in a vacuum, but I do think control decks seemingly always do better in the hands of players that are better than I am. The other thing is that you can just get pretty aggro with this deck, too, and just play Crashing Footfalls on turn one and then just kind of hold the ground. This deck is also positioned to cascade into Footfalls on turn two if you're on the draw because it runs three main deck Gemstone Caverns. So you can get that out pretty early. I think this is a little bit more of a mid-range deck than a tempo deck because you're not really getting any threats down early. Your only threats are Rhinos or Shardless Agent. Well, this gets into a very long discussion about tempo that we'll have off mic after this episode's done recording. <laughs> oh, I've been waiting for years. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but Are yeah, I think... this event, by the way? It, it was uh, Yuchi Ichikawa, who is two proto top eights. They have nine GP top eights. They've won four GPs. They they know what they're doing. And I think they were the favorite going in. No no offense to the other players here, but I think Yuchi just has, Yuki just has the, the biggest resume. Yeah, and Yuki, as a reminder, was on Teamer Footfalls, so the most kind of like normal, basic version of that build, the most common build, I guess. I, I think we should also take note of not only the fact that Yuki won this tournament with Teamer Footfalls, but the amount of footfalls in this event compared to everything else we're about to talk about. Because it feels like this was almost Footfall's last hurrah. And I almost wonder if they registered these decks a week ago. Yeah, I really wish I could have found the cutoff. I couldn't find it uh, easily when I was doing these notes, but I thought the same thing. I was like, I wonder when the cutoff was. Because like if it was... And if it was open deck lists, and I mean, that's the kind of thing that changes the way you play, not the way you register. But anyway, let's head into this Insight Modern 5K, which is a very different tier of play altogether. Uh, it is, I mean, it's a 5K. It has a 25 plus 250 entry fee. And so it's not too bad, but it is a, you know, it's a serious entry fee if you, and you have to 
puss out a bunch of time to play in the Swiss and then in the top eight if you make it. So, hey, before you get into this, people, please play these tournaments. Yeah. <laughs> please play these inside tournaments because I can't play these inside tournaments and I feel like they're out there doing the work right now. They're yeah. keep putting up these 5Ks and I know that they're not me- meeting their registration to, to make the 5K payback out quite yet. So let's try to help them. Right on. Play uh, these tournaments. I think they're good. They're fun. There's a lot of good players in them. Yeah, I mean... What Gabe Nassif was in was in the top eight, and a little bit of a spoiler, playing Living End. So he thinks it's legit. So yeah, there were seventy eight players in this, which is does not make a five k uh, entry pool, but they paid it out, I think. So yeah, like Dave said, absurd EV. Somehow people must not have heard about this uh, event, or maybe they were all playing in something else. Because yeah, this is a high, this is a high profile event, good payout. Let's want to first talk about the the metagame that we saw. What do we see? Number one, with 14% of the field was, is it Blitz? Yeah. I do think that Goldfish is kind of lumping in some, is it Delvery style decks in with Blitz, where it's not pure Blitz. Like, I think some of these actually do have, like, Counterspell in them. But I think that overall, like, there was, yeah, the biggest share of the metagame was, is it aggressive, tempo-y style decks? Yep. And then we had other with 12.82%, 10 decks, and black-red with 11.5% of the metagame and 9 decks. Breakout weekend for black-red. Big time. Also known as Rakdos. We'll come back to it, but it was everywhere. Everywhere, and and quite successful. After black-red, with just under 9%, it was Amulet Titan, 7 copies. And then Urza's Kitchen followed that with 5 copies. Those are your Urza Saga decks, as we talked about, that that were definitely missing from the mocks. They're here. They're in positions four and five. Yeah, I mean, it's Urza Saga and Asmore Food. Right, right. Yeah, Asmore Food. And, and Titan's an Urza Saga deck. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's those two decks together are kind of your Saga decks right now. So there were a lot of decks playing that. And there's like a, a weird array of like what Stone, like Jeskai, Stoneforge style decks, four-color Death Shadow. I think some Velomachus type stuff is in that like Wurg Mm-hmm. You know, pile enchantress. So, a lot of like two ofs and things like that that don't really hold a candle to the metagame share of kind of the big names that we have been talking about. And then the emergence this weekend of Rakdos decks, I think. That's right. All right. Do we want to talk about win rates in the Swiss or do we want to talk about the top eight? Yeah, let's talk about win rates in the Swiss because I do think they were pretty wild. You know, you'd think that with the metagame share so high that you might have seen like also a pretty good win rate to go along with some of these decks, but. We really did not. I'm going to start at the bottom. 36% for these various is it aggro style <laughs> decks. 36% win rate. Uh, excuse me? <laughs> yeah. My baby. It's, sorry, no. Well, you have a new baby uh, this weekend. Let's find out. In in, in the Rakdos decks. No uh, spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers. So yeah, I won't even ask you a question about is it versus uh, the other style of decks. Going up from there. I do think is it has some problems right now. Hmm. We'll talk about it, but. Why wait? Why wait? We're talking about a 36% win rate. What what do you think might be the problem? I just think that it's adapted to being a Dragon's Rage Channeler deck, and there's just other decks that are better at being Dragon's Rage Channeler decks, Whoa. maybe. And also, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the Slack from Abe and a couple other people of our, our, our kind of Slack regulars about if it is trying to give up too much speed in order to play the grindy game via Channeler and uh, Bauble and Delirium and stuff like that. I think maybe. Mm-hmm. I think another problem actually for the Is It decks is uh, Unholy Eve. And there are a lot of decks playing that card, in particular the Red Black deck. 
And uh, that card just kills a Stormwing entity. And, you know, the Izzet decks aren't running mutagenic growth at, at this point, really, or some of them aren't anymore as a counterspell against red direct damage because it still dies if you mutagenic growth your, your Stormwing entity. Yeah, so you can't, you can't prowess yourself out of it is what you're saying. It's a lot harder to yeah. do it. And mutagenic growth is less effective. You can generally just kill their Stormwing entity. And that, that's a big turning point for them. For one, you know, they spend two spells and some stuff on it, and then you use one mana to get rid of it. Part of the reason that people were playing Storming End is because, you know, it was protected from those things. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they replaced the wrong card. Instead of taking out Stormwing, maybe they should take out... Maybe instead of taking out Sprite Dragon, they should take out Stormwing. Correct, yeah. I mean, I thought about it a little bit when I was looking at the list, that maybe it's time to park Stormwing for a little bit. We'll just have to see. I mean, it's a powerful core of spells. It was like the preeminent deck before Modern Horizons 2. Maybe it'll find its way. But a lot of other decks got a lot of tools, and this deck didn't quite get the same type of tools. I mean, it did get good cards, like Dragon's Rage Channeler and Unholy Heat itself. Marktide Regent, maybe. It's just a totally different deck then, though, right? Sure. Which is fine. Yeah, it's like the Delver-style decks, where it's, it's, it's playing maybe sometimes even literal Delver, not very frequently now, but it's saying, like, hey, I'm going to hold up instead of having a bunch of this is the cup we talked about last week, Stan, where it's like the proactive versus reactive strategy, where it's like, I'm going to play all my spells on my turn to like burn you out, clear the board, get damage through, or I'm going to have a bunch of counter magic to protect my strategy and deal with things like maybe these Rakdos decks with uh, the Thoughtseize and Inquisition and Fatal Pushes and things like that, where it's like, I'm going to keep my board and not just try to get damage through on turn three. Yeah. Don't you think the Lava Dart plus Murktide there's, there's a little sexy package there. An easy way to get extra counters on your Murktide region by flashbacking your Lava Darts. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. But, you know, it's all, it, it, they're, still, they're good cards. I just don't know how it's going to turn out to shake out. I mean, let's, let's talk really quickly in this context of the top creatures played in this tournament. Yeah. Just really quickly, Dragon's Rage Channeler was 96 copies. It was in 31% of the decks. Ragavan was 68 copies in 23% of the decks. And formerly top creature that was in all the decks, Monastery Swift Spear, was only in 56 of the decks, 18%. Well, it's 56 copies in 18% of the decks. 56 copies, sorry. 56 copies in 18% of the decks. So it took a hit. So I don't know what the best Monastery Swift Spear deck is right now, but uh, maybe we'll see. This is a dangerous looking like sort of top spells, top cards uh, played. It's just red, artifact, red, red. Is it red, red? <laughs> is it slash blue, artifact, red? Uh, saying something about what we're seeing in the, the modern metagame right now. The top four creatures are all be. red one drops. Yeah, and yeah, the, the CMC of modern, as we have seen in other formats, just sort of just steadily creeping down to be hyper-efficient right now. So either that means there's openings for people to take advantage of, or this is kind of just the, the evolution that we're seeing of, of modern with things like Modern Horizons 2. Anyway, side note, that was a big tangent off of is it's win percentage. So let's, yeah. let's go. Yeah, 36% is it, uh, is it aggro style decks. 47% for Jeskai Stoneblade, a little bit below average. 48% for Titan decks. So even though they were very well represented, they still had a below 50% win rate. Fifty-three percent for four-color shadow strategies. There were only, there were two of those, and so yeah, I guess it's just yeah, you did a little bit better than average. The big thing I wanted to point out here is fifty-nine percent for Rakdos Luris style decks, uh, and that's really good. Fifty-nine percent is a high win rate in the modern metagame. So people who chose these decks and played these decks 
uh, had a good weekend. I'll say it. Question for you guys. Where did you find these win rates? On MTG Melee's website. Oh, cool. Because yeah, I'm looking at the tournament. I, I don't see the win rates by archetype. Yeah, if you you can like sort by you know things. That's one good thing I, I really do like about MTG Melee. Stan did not just tee that up because we have no affiliation with this website. But you can like you can get onto the bottom. You can see the archetype breakdown. You can sort by match win percentage and record and things like that. Percentage of the field, number of decks. So it's a really good way to the 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 issue that you will find is that the normalization of data is not perfect because frequently it is user submitted information. So in really big fields, it'll just be like combo or just guy or something like that. But here it seems like it's pretty well uh, controlled and we we were able to actually sort of group decks together and Goldfish did some work there too. So com- combining them both is uh, a very powerful way to look at a tournament. Yeah. So going to the top eight, speaking of red, black, there were three decks in the top eight that were red, black. Jim Davis came in eighth and then the final was a mirror match of Rakdos between Omar Lopez Cabrera and Matt Brown, Omar Lopez Cabrera, the winner of the tournament. These weren't identical 75 mirror matches, but they were close. You know, they had a lot of the same cards, probably 70 of the same cards. Hmm. Weird. Look at that. Yeah, I feel like, Dave, I'm sure you're going to talk more about kind of the construction of the style of decks, but I've, I've seen sort of very subtle distinctions between decks that seem a little bit more mid-range and decks that seem a little bit more aggressive. Yeah. So there's some that might will have like Scourge is kind of like, I think maybe one of the big selections that you would make. So there, there's a good amount of Mardu Shadow running around. Sure. Right now. But, but he, even if it's not always in those, like sometimes you'll see like a Scourge in a non, in a non shadow one. Yeah. I think that the deck, so let's, let's save it for when I sure. dive deep into it. But I, I think that the, um, the creature package I think is pretty tight. On these decks, it's more the spells and a couple of flex spots right mm. now. Okay. Um, but there's definitely enough Shadow and enough Red Black Luris that are both floating around that there's kind of this like er- archetype of Rakdos Luris stuff going on. The ones that had a big breakout this weekend were, I would say, are not the Shadow Mardu Shadow decks. It's more this different deck. Very cool. Gabe Nassif on Living End had one of the best win rates of the Swiss. Yeah. He went like seven and one or seven and oh, something like that. Eight, two overall or eight and one overall. Eight and one overall. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they lost in the top eight, right? Came in third place. The only, only copy of living end in the field as well. Yeah. I heard him talk about his playing experience with this on uh, midweek metagame, which he's one of the hosts there. And I think he's just been saying like, he's been liking it quite a bit and doesn't feel like it has a lot of predators out there. And, I think it's the kind of game that players know when to pick their spots and trying to go off with a combo and you know what kind of pressure they can put on people to make it more advantageous and sometimes it just can win. It's just a it's a it's a solid deck right now, I think, and I think you need to have a plan for it if you're playing on Magic Online right now. I kind of feel like now is a great time for just more rest in peace or maybe additional copies of Lateland of the Void because between red black, between any of some some of the blue decks that are playing Dragon's Rage Channeler, Living End. I feel like the best way to deal with a lot of these decks is make sure they have no graveyard at all rather than trying to do something like Rest in Peace or Tormod's Crypt. See, that's what does that does kind of surprise me is that I, I have felt that I've seen a lot of graveyard hate. Like I'm running in the deck that I played this week, I was I had 
a Tormod's Crypt and a few Relic. Of, I think it was Relic? Yeah, Relic. And then we're seeing lots, like the continued use of Soul Guide Lantern. I'm surprised, like you said, Stan, is we aren't seeing a ton of Leyline because I think maybe we have the density of artifact-based graveyard hate where people are just like, hey, I'm not in a heavy black deck, so I'm going to be the person with the with the Soul Guide Lantern this week. Or I'm going to have the... the the thing I can tutor up, especially if you're playing an Urza Saga deck, right? Like I can get the the Tormod script that I can just have pop into play and just you know pop right there type thing. Or it, it, you can use it on demand. So like they cast Living End with that on the stack, then you're good to go. It's not something they can counterspell at that point, even if they have some kind of counter. True. And, and I think a lot of the decks that would be running Leyline of the Void would just rather play Lurus. Yes. And, and that's where Soul Guide comes in handy or, or Crypt for that matter. Well, and I also wanted to say, I think that there are cards that are just better against Cascade as well. So you get a little bit, if you're worried about this deck in particular, you probably need to be worried about Cascade and Graveyard Hate because you need to be worried about team uh, Footfalls decks as well. And also maybe the weird Warp World or Glimpse of Tomorrow deck or whatever that, that deck is called too. Like all those decks that are trying to use Shardless Agent to combo into things. And there's cards that are better there, right? Well, Footfalls and Living End are very different decks. Footfalls doesn't care about the Graveyard. Right, but they both care about Cascade. That's true. And so I think you need to think about that axis too. That can be pretty good against Living End as well. And so what you're thinking about there sometimes is like Chalice of the Void and Void Mirror as mm. well are actually cards that are pretty good in that kind of matchup. And so there was one deck running those this week and we can talk about it. <laughs> God, this is the most teases per minute that we've ever clocked. The TPM is pretty high. Yeah. I do quickly want to get into these modern challenges. I'm not going to go into any top eights of any of them or anything like that, but I, it was one on the 27th and one on the 28th and actually, excuse me, the 26th and the 27th. And I just went through the top 16 I cataloged what made the top 16 in both of these tournaments. And what I saw was five each of Amulet Titan and Rakdos aggro slash mid-range style decks. So that was 10 of our 32 decks. There was three uh, Demir Food. There were two each of Hammer Time. Is it Blitz? Is it Delver? And Eldrazi Tron sticking around. That's it's our Chalice of the Void slash maybe probably not void mirror style deck though and then one was a bunch of stuff you had you know elementals and scales and living end and yawgmoth enchantress uh, various blade decks and so on so we really are seeing a little bit of a concentration in both the insight esports and in the challenges of a lot of amulet titan a lot of rakdos decks Still seeing some food stick around in these challenges. And then if you totaled Blitz and Delver style decks together, they do play different, in my opinion. We would have four Is It decks there as well. And so I think that's what seems to be emerging as the deck of choice for people. What are we thinking overall? Like where We talked about a bunch of different tournaments. We, we talked about a good amount of different decks. What are we seeing? What are we not seeing? What seems like it's fading away? What seems like it's rising? I mean, number one for me was just I expected to see a lot more food given the talk last week. I mean, I, I kind of had to dip out for a little bit because of work and other stuff and I wasn't really getting to play, but every piece of content I was consuming was like the food decks, the food decks, the food decks, the food decks. And, you know, I've been playing the last five or six days and have not seen a lot of those and they're not showing up in huge numbers here either. So that was a surprise to me. What about you, Stan? Just the consolidation around Dragon's Race Channeler and, and, 
also to a certain extent, the monkey, Ragavan. It seems like Red is really starting to emerge as kind of the best way to be proactive. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, so often the modern format is just about who can have the most proactive strategy that can be disruptive while staying aggressive. And I think we're seeing just a lot of that in different DRC or Ragavan packages, if not both. Yeah. Well, I think, Stan, what's interesting is when you said that, I was instantly thinking about the whole modern metagame right now. Like, there, mo- lots of our, almost every deck, except for perhaps, like, Amulet Titan, really seems to derive its power from having disruption plus aggression, or a plan, at least, right? Like, it's just like, I can mess with what you're doing because I either have free spells or cheap spells, or we have one mana removal that can deal, that red now has one mana removal that can deal six damage. It can kill a primeval titan. It can kill a primeval titan. We have a great efficiency of spells that can be disruptive, be aggressive, they can mess with what the opponent's game plan is, they can counter a spell for free, they can counter a creature, a planeswalker for free, they can uh, store us the plowshares for free. So we have this interesting ability of modern decks to not lean on a single game plan. Like the, the control deck of your with a celestial colonnade as your finisher on turn 17, is just like, what would you even do that for? Like I I can, I can have an aggressive game plan with counter magic backup. That doesn't require me to lock the game up in the same way at all. Mm -hmm. And so like, you're not, you're saying like, I'm, I'm able to apply pressure. Why also having reactive spells. And I think that is a big shift in the modern metagame because it's not just a small selection of decks that's doing that. It's I'd say two thirds of the deck that we're seeing continue to do well. And I think we'll talk about that as we go through the rest of this episode as well, because I think that a few of us played decks like that. I, I would describe as that at least. Yep. You guys remember grief plus ephemerate. <sighs> I haven't seen it once. Same. <clears throat> I did have, I haven't had solitude cast against me once. I haven't had, there's a whole bunch of things that I, you know, I've barely seen like Stoneforge. I, I did last week when I was playing more Rakdos, uh, Rakdos Shadow kind of, Marty Shadow. I did see a bunch of Stoneforge decks then. Culture complete. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, it's weird. I haven't seen some of those decks that I thought were really going to be there. It's really just like you said, everybody's trying to figure out what the best Dragon's Rage Channeler shell is right now. Yeah, it's a bit scary. I did have the, I, I was solitude ephemerated and it was upsetting uh in in one of my leagues this week so but yeah that did feel like an outlier right like it's not like i'm having that happen to me often you know decks are using the elementals i think in interesting and different ways than i expected Uh, and i think i'll talk about that maybe if i've got time during my my league experience because i wanted to call out some of the opponent's decks that i thought were interesting but yeah i think that's that's interesting, like you said, Dave, is the, the lack of food or sort of like the the diminishing metagame share of food is surprising to me because, like you said, I think it might be sort of a maybe a conversation vacuum because food's so new and it still reminds us of perhaps of the Urza decks of yore, right? Where it's like, you know, oh, there's Urza and there's Artifacts and there's Urza Saga and these are a new powerful way of attacking and oh asmo just invalidates creature decks and then we see black red and is it decks just take over the weekend i don't think any of us in this room by the way we're all in the same room right now oh, that's crazy that's still, still cool still still, still feeling awkward that. but obviously we don't think that these asmo food decks are are 
dead or uh, from the format. I, I think what we might be experiencing is this race to the bottom to figure out the best aggressive red shell because that's probably where the most powerful creatures are right now. And then once we have a little bit of more of a solved metagame there around whether ra- it's Ragavan or Dragon Rage, maybe we'll start to see different mid-range or controlling shells kind of emerge that can keep up. Because I do think Jeskai Monkey Blade still does keep up and we have, like, it's still doing well all over the place and it may be kind of the best control deck this week. Yeah, it's interesting. It didn't show up in any any of these top eights, I don't think, or at least not in significant numbers. We might have had like one. But the kind of like, you know, protect the the best creature strategies seem to be more like a couple of shadow decks that snuck through more so than than that. Yeah, it, it wasn't in the events we talked about, but it was in the challenges. Ah, okay. Like Jeskai won, I think, the Saturday challenge or came in second in the Sunday challenge. Got it. I mean, it's a good card. We, we, I, you guys talked about it a little bit last week, I think, where there has been a little bit of a renaissance with Stoneforge just in general, and that's a cool place to be. Love her. All right, so we've had some fun talking about tournaments. Are we ready to talk about our experiences, Legan? Yeah, let's take let's take the proverbial quick break. Let's head out of this section and then come back in so uh, Dave can school us <laughs> on the, the new good decks from Modern Horizons 2, so stay with us. And we're back. Before we dive into these decks that we've been playing, we'll, we'll admit failure. <laughs> well, let's just acknowledge you might be hearing background noise. You might be hearing echo. You might be hearing crosstalk. There may be a little bit of that, but also people shooting fireworks outside of Dave's house to celebrate Dave. There's some airplanes. There's some cars honking their horns. We have, our wives are upstairs. Yeah, this, talking is, this, is, this is a direct to disc studio to master disc recording this is what it'll sound like if and when we finally get to record at parties and we just do live shows <laughs> to, to empty rooms i'm sure people are can't wait for gps to happen again so that they can see us live on tour <laughs> yeah awkward, awkwardly talking about modern magic and being like where's our editor tanner they get a whole 30 people <laughs> yeah we'll just do some improv games yeah oh, i love that five things go okay uh dave what i'd like for you to do actually uh live is Finally, you know, come through with all these these uh, content hints you've been getting, and talk to us about Rakdos in Modern Magic. Yeah. So, I uh, somehow I ended up playing the deck of the weekend. I think randomly. Yeah. Now we all know who designed this deck, right? We do. Front of the show, uh, Ever Mohan. No, it was me. <laughs> Front <laughs> no, of, of the course. show, Dave Harburger. Yeah. No, of course it was. It was Ever Mohan, Aspiring Spike who, um, you know, I first noticed this deck because I saw him tweeting on Thursday about how he had gone 10-0 with this deck. And then later on, he reported that he got another trophy, had won 15 matches in a row, and ended up 44-6 and with the deck overall. I guess across 10 leagues, he went 44-6 and is what that, that would break down to. So the equivalent of like one month of magic for me, he's just sort of casually busting out 10 leagues. Yeah, exactly. And four, by my count, that means four of them were, were trophies, by the way, at least. So, I mean, I, that, that I was on vacation. I was looking for something fun to play. I had already spent some time playing some Dragon's Rage Channeler, Ragavan, Douthy Voidwalker decks in Shadow the weekend before, where I was playing some Mardu Shadow decks I didn't get to talk to, talk to you guys about on the podcast. Um, 
so I thought that those cards already together were really strong. And I saw this deck and I was like, wow, it's just a lot easier to not have to worry about mind games with Death Shadow or anything like that. Like, let's just play awesome threats and kind of see where it goes from there. So you kind of hinted at it, Stan. I think that this is a red-black disruptive deck that is just short of mid-range. It's really... Too fast to be mid-range. It kind of is too fast to be mid-range. And it's also just, yeah, it's so low to the ground. Like, it's focused on getting Delirium to power up a couple of your cards. It's really heavy on discard. So you can cast spells proactively to be able to get, like, a sorcery into the graveyard. Basically, had a good amount of removal. Kind of what you would expect from a fast aggro deck that's a little bit interactive. It's not quite the same type of thing. It's never going to be as fast as, like, Is It or something like that. So it's definitely slots in between a true mid-range deck and something that's just all aggro, like a burn or prowess style, something like that. Dave, I'm also very excited to hear if your discard spells enabled you putting things into the graveyard of your opponents to cast back with Dothy Voidwalker. Yes. I'm just, yeah. So that's, that's me just crossing my fingers all the time. So it features a bunch of MH of uh, modern horizons, two cards. I think it's kind of an uncomfortable level of Modern Horizons two cards in this this deck because let me let me read the deck list to you. In the creature suite, we have four Dragon's Rage Channeler, four Ragavan Nimble Pilferer, four Douthy Voidwalker, and the list that I played, it was tweaked out by a lot of people later, was I had three Turok Dread Cantor yeah. in my decks, and then I also had three Unholy Heat Main and one in the sideboard. So fully 23 cards in the 75 at least were were Modern Horizons two cards, plus I had a couple of copies of Void Mirror. We haven't really talked about anyone playing with Turok here. Whether you do it now or later, I'd love to hear what you thought about that card. I'll definitely spend some time on it, because I think it's an interesting one. But the big thing here is that it's all the good, cheap creatures from Modern Horizons 2. It's a bunch of the cards that we thought were going to be good together in one spot. You know, Also, since this is a Delirium-style deck, you, know, you want to enable an Unholy Heat and Dragon's Raid Channel as fast as possible, Bobble makes an appearance, and when Bobble comes along, since the casting cost is right, of course, this is a Lurus deck. It's what, you know, Everett has long said he thought was kind of like the best thing to be doing in Modern is some kind of Lurus deck. This is a really good Lurus deck. Hmm. But, you know, there's also, I think that the the last card in the Creature Suite is worth talking about, too, because this is one of the first decks that I played, honestly, one of the first decks that I played where I was like, Kroxa is amazing. Wow. Kroxa is so good in this deck. It's crazy good in this deck, I think. Because it helps enable your Dothy stuff. Not even Dothy is important. You just demolish people's hands in this deck. You you demolish them. You have, let me, I had some notes on this a little bit later. You have 15 of the spells in your deck makes make opponents discard cards. And then another eight of them lets you steal cards from your opponent's deck one way or another, whether that's Dalthy Voidwalker or or your Ragavan. Fifteen spells. There's, you know... Yeah, it's like a freaking nightmare to play against. There's four Inquisition of Kozilek. There's three Thoughtseize. The deck I had had two Coligans Command. Most people I saw over the weekend had swapped that over to being three Coligans Command and having one less Turok, basically, or one less K-Com additional... KCOM is two back. Turok. Yeah, it was it was really good in it. And then, of course, you have three Kroxa, and that's just... and then whatever number of Turok you had to all kind of play into a discard theme. This is one of the first decks in a while where I really felt like I was just like, I'm just going to take your hand apart mm-hmm. and keep an eye on it and then stick a couple of threats, you know, get some value off of my Dragon Trade channel or sculpt the top of, my, top of my deck and then just kind of like go, go, go. And hopefully I can protect stuff from there. 
as I mentioned, you know, it's rounded out by the deck. Once you get to like your done with your discard suite with Kroxa and Thoughtseize and, and Inquisition and Kozilek, you kind of round out the last bit of cards in the deck with Lightning Bolt and uh, K Command and your Unholy Heats that I mentioned before. And that that's the deck. It's discard cards. It's Lightning Bolt slash Creature Removal. It's Bobble, and it's an incredibly cheap uh, creature package. That's all of it. I don't know. I feel like this is a conversation we'll probably have later in terms of Mishra's Bobble. But this is just one of those decks that I feel like three months ago, they probably wouldn't be running Bobble just because the, the, the cards like Unholy Heat and cards like DRC and uh, weren't really in the deck, so it wasn't relying on getting Delirium. But I feel like Mistress Bobble is now in fairly ubiquitous across so many different kinds of decks, just simply because of it makes you play essentially a 56-card deck and enables Delirium, but it's always done that. It's always enabled the 56-card deck, but it hasn't been quite as everywhere as we're seeing it now. I don't think that's totally true. I mean, Bobble's been in, in was in Rakdos Shadow, for a while, and also I believe it was in Rakdos Prowess as well, because Rakdos Prowess was a Luris deck too, and so that's just like how you ground. Sure. And so Bobble, I think, really has come into its own with Luris, but now Dragon's the best one drop in the format, what's potentially the best one drop in the format, and Dragon's Rage Channeler also getting a great payoff off of Bobble is just making it go even farther and stretching it into decks where you don't even have Luris anymore because you're playing and it isn't now and things like that. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit last week, I think, but I I feel like the more that I think about it, and I'm sure that you played, uh, I th- I'm sure you played a bunch of Dragon's Rage Channeler into Mishra's Bobble. I feel like that one-two punch is absurdly good when you play it, because until you do it, you're like, well, yeah, sure, okay, I'm casting a free spell and I'm and I'm uh, doing a surveil. But because of the way Mishra's Bobble works, where you can then make another choice on if you fetch to get rid of that top card or if you want that card in your graveyard it gives you just this extra look at what you're choosing to potentially draw or putting to, choosing to put in your graveyard along with the artifact itself and that that little synergy is so cheap and does so much to just improve your the initial takeoff of your deck because you do it typically so early on in the game yeah it's also not the initial takeoff i mean that helps you lots of different situations in the game you get your bauble back you play it off of luris you do the same same thing in the middle of the game you get you get a look at a couple of cards and get to sculpt the top, top of your deck and then decide what you want to draw that's great even in the mid game i think this is all one thing of saying which is just kind of like dragon's rage channeler is amazing it's not amazing because it becomes a three three flyer for one it's amazing yeah. because surveil as a prowess ability is kind of crazy really crazy because you can put a payoff into your graveyard and then have that, have that card be available for you to bring back with Luris or something like that. You can double check, like, you know, get your mana, try to get your mana right and things like that. You can try to keep from being mana flooded by getting rid of that. Yeah. It does so much stuff for such a small cost. Yeah. Especially because spells are so cheap and then just like the efficiency there is so high. The card could stay a one, one forever and still be really, really good. I think you're Honestly, right. I think, I think that's true. Now, it'd be better if it was a 1-2 so it didn't die to Lava Dart. The front half of a Lava Dart, but hypothetically speaking, it would still be a really good payoff for spells. It might be the best prowess payoff that there is in the format. Yeah, and I think this is where I can I can just admit that 
you know, the, the take I wanted to have on Dragon's Race Channeler being the most overrated card in, in the set and probably being a little bit of a disappointment, you know, one was to have good podcast content, but two was like <laughs> a little bit of a truth where I was like, well, it doesn't seem quite as good as people think. But I think that what you said, Dave, is true, which is it's not necessarily great because it's a 3-3 flyer. It's, it doesn't quickly become a 3-3 flyer on turn two all the time and just start swinging in and it's the new Delver of the format. It's because the synergy between just the cheap and hyper-efficient spells and the way that you want to have good card selection. And like you said, like, do I want, do I want to land? Do I not want to land? Do I want this spell? Like what's contextually good here? And that is the, the real power of the surveil one there. Yeah. Yeah. So Stan, have you played with dragons race too much? I did once with one of those, is it Delver list Delver decks that Jesse fought out with a couple weeks ago. And it was cool. Just this style of deck kind of bores me right now as a player, where I'd rather be doing something a little bit slower. I've just I'm so rarely drawn to to aggro, low to the ground aggro decks anymore. Yeah. That it's interesting. It really is very in between those two things. Like you can deal with a lot of other threats and then close the game. So it's not like you have to get on the board and win. You just have good interaction to go either way. And well, so I think that we should talk about one of the next. Modern Horizons two cards because one of the things I was going to say was the Modern Horizons two cards in this deck are all crazy good. Yeah, we're all good. They're all they're all good. And like I have different things to say about each of them. We just spent a bunch of time talking about Dragon's Rage Channeler. You know, Everett said tweeted out after he went on his run that he thought Dragon's Rage Channeler was the best card in Modern Horizons two. Maybe it's true. We'll see next week what people think. But the only creatures in this deck you played that aren't from MH two are Kroxa and Luris. Yep. Everything else is a new card. Yep, exactly. Makes you think. Surprise. Yeah, the, t- scary. the Titan that we still have left from, uh, what's that? Theros Beyond Death. The Elder Giant, rather. Yeah, guess what? Escape is still good. <laughs> Weird. Is, is Escape good with Unholy Heat? Are, are, do, do you ever feel like those are at odds with one another? Definitely. You have to be a little careful about that. Yeah. You definitely want to favor, I think you want to favor towards keeping Delirium going over getting your your croaks are back, but that is one way to turn the corner in a game that's kind of aggro. And one card that really helps you do that quickly, actually, is Ragavan. Ha uh-huh. Believe it or not. Ooh, ah, ah. Yeah. So between Dragon's Rage Channeler and Ragavan, of course, you get to fill up your graveyard. But the thing about Ragavan is, I think that in this particular deck, it's like the worst one drop in some ways, but the card is crazy good. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's so insane. Good. Yeah. Because it can lead to low power draws, which is kind of a drag sometimes. Like I had a couple times where you draw multiple ragavans and you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? Mm-hmm. But the fact that it ramps you and also randomly draws cards occasionally is just totally wild. And it lets you do things occasionally. Like where you stick a turn one ragavan, you can go really hard into your turn four play or sorry, turn three play where you can play, you can use four mana on turn three, and what you get to do with four mana on turn three in this deck is sometimes you can escape a Kroxa on turn three after casting it on turn turn two, mm-hmm. and that is like, whoa. Yeah. And then also sometimes you can cast a kicked Turok with the right mixing on, with the right mana fixing because of Ragavan on turn three as well, and that is super powerful because you suddenly take two of your opponent's cards, and also you have a four three to attack with. Yeah, Dave, I don't know if you listened to last week's episode, um, but one of the things that we talked about was how I was 
I was, un- I was getting the idea that Dragon's Rage Channeler was sort of better in the proactive decks because you sort of were peeling through your deck and casting spells on your turn and kind of making those selections. And then Ragavan got you that mana advantage that allowed you to be a- a more aggressive with casting stuff on your turn while keeping up reactivity. And this deck seems like you said it's sort of aggressive and mid rangey, and maybe it, is it splitting the difference? Do you think in a successful way where it's like getting the best parts both of Dragon's Rage and of Ragavan, where it's like, hey, I, I would love an extra Lotus Petal. I would love you know I would love the ability to cast the cheap spell from my opponent's hand if if I'm able to get some advantage out of it. Yeah, I mean it helps because you're sort of like mana hungry in this deck. It's hard to get black, black, black for Turok, for example. I think the thing about this deck is that the interaction is proactive, right? Because you're casting, you're casting Thought Seize and Inquisition of Kozilek. Yeah, so it's on your turn. You're it's not, not waiting to counterspell stuff. Yeah. So I think that's part of the style that makes this deck work is that you get to cast your spells and use your mana and do all that kind of stuff and hopefully you take away what people are really looking for. I'm surprised to hear you say that you have a hard time with mana just because there's only two mountains here. Everything else produces black. Yeah. Yeah, it's just because there aren't that many fetchable lands in this I deck I so i think yeah that, you I got think, two blood crypt three swamp two mountain right and so you're trying to like balance yourself out and you're like do i go get two swamps like what am what am i doing here like and then sometimes you draw something like i mean graving karen which is like i never thought that card would see play but it, it is helpful in this deck to be able to like filter between the, the lands that you need and stuff like that and then you know this deck even runs like castle lockthwain yeah. at least the, the build that i was doing and i i used it sometimes to draw extra cards like was helpful in those flooding situations. So Ragavan, living up to the hype for me, definitely was a, a an all-star, but wasn't like the MVP in this deck. But it's a really good card. W- one thing I find playing with Ragavan is I so seldom want to cast my opponent's spells. Did you find that as well? It's like one out of three times, Yeah, I feel like. It's the minority. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that. Maybe in... one out of four. Even sure, I mean, sure. usually you need to hit with Ragavan a couple of times to have a couple of Lotus Petals. So that when you draw an off-color card, you can cast it. And then you're like, yeah. sure, I'll cast your card, Shardless Agent. Like, fine, whatever. Let's see what I cascade into in my deck. It'll, it'll be good. Um, so that's definitely a consideration. But I think that the fixing is more than worth it here mm-hmm. for me. And, you know, I know it only attacks like a Savannah Lion, so it gets roadstopped by a, a lot of things. But it's a good card. Nimble. Nimble. Turok. No. Not Please talk about Dothy. No, the next card I really, really want to talk about is the card that I had wrong, that I thought was overhyped in this set, and that is Dothy Voidwalker. Oh, yes. Oh. Like, yes, he admitted. <laughs> you admit it, I admit it. Um, I, you know, I just felt like after that first weekend, I wasn't really seeing Dothy anywhere, but you know, then I played it in Shadow, and it was just in my sideboard, and I was bringing it in like every match, and was like, why aren't these just... These cards seem good enough to be main deck, and then I saw this deck that Everett had put together, and I was like, hey, look, a full full package of Dothy Voidwalker main. The card is just so many different pieces are applicable to so many different games. It's it's amazing. You know, of course, the graveyard hate randomly hoses enough things here and there almost just to be worth having in game one anyway. It, there's no downside to playing it. It's just two, it's two mana for an unblockable 3-2. That's amazing. I won so many games this weekend by just attacking with one mm-hmm. or two Douthy Voidwalkers when they couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. And then, on top of that, if you actually get to have it online long enough to tap it to steal a card, that's incredible. Yeah, 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 yeah give us a list of cool stuff you cast, Dave. Well, I mean, I, I would say you haven't lived until you've sacked a Douthy Voidwalker 
to cast an opponent's Luris to then recast your Doubt Deeper. <laughs> it's not a bad sequence, right? I would, I would cast those spells. Yeah. And then another time, you know, I got to do the same thing. But so I, I let me be clear. I didn't actually get to do that one. But the one that I did that was awesome was I had Doughty Voidwalker out. I cast Luris. I sacked my Doughty Voidwalker to cast my opponent's Stormwing entity. Got to scry two and then got to replay my Doughty Voidwalker. So I had I went from a board of just Doughty Voidwalker to a board that was Doughty Voidwalker, Luris, and a Stormwing and had just scryed two. That was pretty great. I like it. Um, so no Emrakul's. No, nothing, nothing that amazing. But like even just stealing a lightning bolt sure. is amazing mm-hmm. here and there. And you get to cast them without without, you know, you get to cast them without paying any mana cost. So it's right. even more crazy when you're kind of like, I'll play this on turn two, and then if I get something great, like maybe I'll drop a three drop and then cast cast whatever card I get off. Well, the mana cost of all of them is is two. It's the cost of Dothy. Yeah, but sometimes you get a couple of attacks in and then it's even even right. better than that. Right. So how did the unblockability feel? I've heard, that's kind of like people have sort of been hinting as like, yeah, don't forget it's just a it's a it's a unblockable three two. Yeah, don't forget it's an unblockable 3-2. Also, please don't forget that it cannot block. So yeah. sometimes it's it's hard in that situation. You know, you sometimes you do need the card to like stabilize. And if you draw a Voidwalker, then that kind of is not great. But it's worth it. You're winning. It's worth it. Okay, now let's talk about Turok. I'm so curious about this card. So I think that Turok is the card that's the most on the bubble. And I've seen a lot of people try different things. In this slot, like towards the end of the weekend, it seemed like people were playing Dark Confidant. Yeah. over Turok because the mana cost of everything in this deck is so low that you're not at a great risk to like hurt yourself. So it was almost pushing the whole deck to be a little more Jund-like in that sense. But I found Turok to be really powerful, really swingy, but expensive. Mm-hmm. It's nice to have a card that comes down as a 4-3, a card that you can cast with a kicker from Luris, so you can get a 4-3 down and get a couple of extra cards later. The Pro White's occasionally good. I definitely don't think you want three like I had in the in the build that I was playing, like Everett's earlier build. I think that everybody shaving it down to two makes a bunch of sense. And it might be that, hey, it's better to get some card draw in instead. But I had some incredible moments where I got to like, you know, someone thought they had me. We had a traded down and then I cast Turok and I take their like Urza's Saga and Bribery. So I get their last couple of cards and then they're just done because they don't have any way to generate card advantage fast enough to, to catch up. And then occasionally... If they kill my Turok, then I just recast it with Luris anyway, and we're just off to the races again. And the, the other thing about Turok is that it keeps getting bigger. Mm-hmm. So if you play a Turok, have him discard two, and then they hold on a card, and then you cast an Inquisition Coast like it gets another counter, and then you can just keep going that way. So I had a couple of games where I was like attacking with a 6-5 Turok as well, and that was really helpful. Yeah, it's a bit of a combo yeah. with Kroxa and your other discard spells. Yeah. But this is the way that I close out so many games with this, though, is with Kroxa. As yeah. honest, what happened a lot was I would be like, okay, uh, I've got your cards down to nothing. I croaked you one time. I'm hitting you with a Delphi Voidwalker, and then I croaked you, and you take three life. And then I attack with it one time, and you die to the trigger. I don't even have to hit you with the 6-6. The six, six. So I think Turok is good, but I'm not sure it's the right card for that slot. There, I think there's a lot of other options you can play there. It's a flex slot. Yeah. Uh, Unholy Heap, you guys talked about it. It's hot and yeah. godless. It might have been the real MVP of the deck. Just because of how many different things you could kill with it for one mana, it just catches you up so fast. It helps you get rid of a threat that is like previously out of reach for decks like this, or that you would have to run like Terminate for. I did see people running Terminate in this deck towards the end of the weekend as well, and you know I think that makes sense to have a couple of outs to like 
Tarmogoyf because that actually Tarmogoyf is pretty good against this deck. Because if you get your Tarmogoyf up to a 6-7, you, you literally can't kill it because you don't have any fatal potions. I mean, 6-7 is pretty hard. It's not that hard if I'm filling my graveyard and you're filling your graveyard, though. You know what I mean? So I think I think it's kind of in the middle somewhere. You know, I did a final shout-out to Kroxa already. The card was was probably one of the other like MVPs of the deck. Whether I was just getting a couple triggers or swinging in with it, it was, it was awesome. So this deck is really good. Seems like everybody agrees that this deck is really good. The results from this weekend show that it's really good. Yeah, like, do you think is this deck able to prey on the Is It decks? For example, I feel like it would be able to pretty much pick them apart. Yeah, I think it does definitely. So is that like maybe why we saw like a downswing in the performance of Is It? I think it's a big part of it for sure. Again, I think it's because, but I also think it's like we said earlier, it's because of more the pervasiveness of Unholy Heat. So I think that even in against other decks that are running Unholy Heat, of which I'm not sure how many there are other than Is It and Red Black. Um, there might not be that many that are actually running it. It's basically any most Red Luris decks because you need the Bobbles and maybe a Tarfire. Right. Yeah. So I think that, that that's causing a big, big problem with it as well. So I when I picked this up, this deck is so good that I even trophied with this deck. <laughs> nice. My man with a trophy. I, and you bought the trophy at a store, right? I did. I put my own name on it. I got myself a trophy, and it's up on the wall over here in my basement next to my cards from, from when I Grand Prix day two That's right. Over there. Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah. Do you think this deck benefited at all from the fact that it was really new? I mean, like, the deck is a week old, if that, and people just weren't necessarily prepared to attack. It's unique blend of aggro mid-range disruption in the low to the ground lures package how are they going to attack this deck though this is like this it's sort of like reminiscent of like the older shadow style decks where it's like hey i'm going to pick apart your hand and and take away anything that matters and like and take away what's going to stop you from stopping me well i mean fatal like no one's playing fatal push right now and i feel like fatal push eats this alive yeah i mean mostly i think graveyard is pretty good against this deck yeah. You know? And so I think that's probably like Graveyard Hate is pretty good against it. You're um maybe maybe even an Esper deck. Going slightly the Esper bigger. control decks because yeah. they have like a nice blend of black removal with some reactive spells. Yeah, I think I think there are plenty of ways to attack a deck like this, I guess is what I would, would definitely say is like there's a lot of ability to to for the metagame to move around this deck, and that's just how it is with mid rangey decks like this, is they can often be the best deck. But they're not often the best deck for long, or they don't stay the same build for long. Like, if you want to keep a deck like this good, you have to really, like, craft those flex spots so they're good in individual moments in the, um, in the metagame. So, Believe Minus? Yeah, if we're going to do Sleep Believe Heave, <laughs> I, I think this is a full believe right now. Like I said, <laughs> it, it, it carried me to a, to a trophy, and honestly, I don't even think I played that well. It was just, like, I had everything I needed every time I needed it. I love so, you're, you're a sleever. You're not just a believer. Yeah, I'm a sleeper. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get these pieces. You still have that that one Croxa that I just left here, and you eventually just paid me for. Yep. Yeah. That you left here a year a year and a half ago or whatever. <laughs> Last thing I'm gonna say about this deck, it's like 1,100 tickets on Moto, so it's hard to rent. Good luck, Dave. I'll talk about a much cheaper deck, a Magic Online. It's a mere 330 Magic the Gathering Online tickets, and it is. Another deck that features Modern Horizons 2 cards, and that is the newer builds of Hammer, or Hammer Time, or Mono White Hammer, or whatever we want to call it. And it's called that because, of course, Colossus Hammer. And we talked about this deck in a full-blown uh, dive down 
episode a number of months ago when it was first sort of coming onto the scene and doing quite well and being at pretty much tier one, I'd say, in the modern metagame. And I think that it's one of the sleeper decks, I'd say, of the emerging modern metagame because it's able to use a few new pieces and primarily the piece of Urza's Saga to get a lot of advantage that I didn't have before. And so uh, I, I played this deck in some practice games. And I did a full league with it. And there were some strengths and weaknesses of the deck and a few uh, complex play patterns that caused me to misplay that I want to talk about because I think the deck is really fascinating right now. I think it's really good right now. And I think that it uses uh, one new tool in Esper Sentinel just fine. And then Urza Saga, I think, brings a new aspect to this deck that I didn't have before that allows it to play a different angle. And as we have seen in a number of different decks throughout modern history and in recent history, is being able to play a few different kind of attacks and having a few different ways of approaching a game is really advantageous where you're not just a linear aggro combo deck. You can grind out an opponent uh, you can attack what they're trying to do. And I think that this deck does something new with Urza Saga that I want to go over. So let's, I guess if, you, if you're not familiar with this deck, what it really is doing is it plays a pile of cheap artifacts and things like Memnite and Ornithopter and things like Springleaf Drum to accelerate your mana. And then a number of cards, cheap cards, that can provide protection and disruption, things like Giver of Runes and the new card Esper Sentinel which also is an artifact which comes into play when we talk about the card Pure Steel Paladin. And I guess we should, I'm kind of uh, missing the most important thing, Colossus Hammer, which is a one-mana artifact that gives an equipped creature plus 10, plus 10. It loses flying, however, which is important. It's a very heavy hammer. The problem here, though, is that the equip cost is 8. So as we talked about in the Dive Down episode, the way this deck works is by getting around that equip cost through primarily two cards, almost exclusively two cards, actually, which are Pure Steel Paladin, who I just mentioned a minute ago. It's a white, white 2-2. Two, two. And when, the, when an equipment enters the battlefield under your control, you may draw a card. Oh, that's cool. Oh, but also Metalcraft. If you have three or more artifacts, the equip cost of any equipment you control is zero. So that lets you play your Colossus Hammer and then equip it to anything for zero mana, which is great, nice and cheap. And then we also have Sigarda's Aid, which is an enchantment, single white mana. You can cast auras and enchantments as though they had flash. Oh, that's cool. But whenever an equipment enters the battlefield under your control, you can attach it to target creature you control. So that's the other way we have to cheat this eight mana equip cost of Colossus Hammer. So Pure Steel Paladin needs to have three artifacts. Therefore, you want to have a number of cheap ones on the battlefield doing stuff for you. And of course, we have Stoneforge Mystic. You need ways to get hammers into your hand. So you have things like Stoneforge Mystic, which tutors it out of your, uh, out of your library. Did this deck always have Stoneforge yeah, in it? Yeah, it always did. I'm trying to remember. Because that was just one of the ways to get a hammer. So you, you play your two-mana creature, you tutor up the hammer, and because you don't really care about Stoneforge really living past that, because you're not casting out an expensive batter skull, you're not, ca you're, not, you're not putting an expensive batter skull onto the battlefield, you're not putting an expensive calder complete onto the battlefield, once you cast Stoneforge, she has done her job for you, and you have that hammer in your hand, and because the casting cost is so cheap, it's not a big deal, as long as your cheater elements are surviving. So let's talk about... So the game plan is essentially get hammer, 
cheat hammer, preferably onto something like a flyer, like Ornithopter. You can maybe if you can flash it in with on Sigardazade after they've declared their attacks and then haven't been blocked, then you get some fast damage in. Maybe you have two hammers and a single attacker. Like on turn one, you go like the fastest kills are things like Ornithopter or Memnite, turn one, along with a Sigarda's aid on turn one. Turn two, play a second land, and then you just flash in two Colossus Hammers onto that zero mana attacker, and you do 20 damage, or 20, 21 damage, and the game is over. And that doesn't happen super infrequently, but you can very easily get turn three kills, turn four kills. There's ways of getting an Ink Moth Nexus in on turn three pretty reliably if you have Sigarda's Aid and things like that. So there's a lot of ways to quickly kill with this deck. And that was kind of its MO in the past, was quick combo creature plus cheating the equip cost of Colossus Hammer and winning. What this deck does now with the addition of Urza Saga is give you one, an additional way to tutor up the Colossus Hammer, because remember, after the third phase of the saga triggers, are those what are those phases? What are they? They're chapters. Chapters, yes, because they are stories or sagas. So the third chapter goes off, uh, and then it says, search your library for an artifact card with mana cost one or zero, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle. Colossus Hammer costs one. So that's yet another way for you to tutor up a Colossus Hammer to combine with one of your cheater effects. So in this deck, it seems to... Some some people are shaving the completely the Steel Shaper's Gift, which is a one white mana sorcery that basically says, go get an artifact or an equipment card out of your library, put it into your hand, and then shuffle. And so with Urza Saga, we're both getting the the land that does this for you, but importantly, gives you the side game or the alternate game plan I mentioned earlier, and we've been talking about on this podcast for the past few weeks, of the construct uh, mini game, which is how many constructs can I make that combine with my pile of cheap artifacts and each other to then give me beaters that cost me nothing. And so if your opponent is a removal heavy deck and they're taking care of your Memnites and your Ornithopters and your Giver of Runes and all that and your Pure Seal Paladins, that kind of stuff, then you're also able to say, well, I'm going to pop out some Urza Sagas by just kind of doing nothing and sitting back and using my mana. Speaking of beaters that cost nothing, yes. since when does Memnite cost $5? Oh yeah, that's a thing. It just doesn't have a lot of reprints. Yeah. And this deck is, is staying popular and the affinity decks are coming back. And so, you know, zero mana one ones aren't free, Stan. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so... A little bit more about Urza Saga, what it does is, so it it gives you that just alternate game plan of saying, hey, I don't need to win through a combo. I can win by just playing these constructs that easily get up to 5-5, 6-6 even in this deck, because you just have a lot of springleaf drums, or Colossus Hammers that you're not equipping on anything, or Shadow Spears that you tutored up. Or your Esper Sentinels, which are artifacts and add to the artifact pile. Or even even making Inkmoth Nexus into a creature just to add to the power and toughness of your uh, constructs. Tricky, oh, tricky. Tricky, yeah. But what's also important, too, is that tutor ability can get all sorts of stuff. So it can get a Springleaf from to keep your mana online. Some people are playing interesting things like a, a main deck Pithing Needle, which does some advantageous things where... 
like remember when I mentioned before, you don't really care if your Stoneforge Mystic can use her ability. You know, against a competing Stoneforge Mystic decks, it's a perfectly great name on Pithy Needle to say uh, Stoneforge Mystic. The Pithing Needle main is like, you can look at it and be like, uh, what do I really care about naming? But there's a lot of stuff because Urza Saga, it kind of it kind of does that same thing like Meddling Mage, often Aether Vial does, where it's like, I'm coming into play and I'm naming something instantly and you can't respond to it. It's like, you can catch people out where they're just like, this, maybe they don't crack a fetch land. Do you know what I mean? And like, you're just like, oh, like I can, I can name that fetch with Pithy Needle because like you can't respond to it coming into play. Like that's like, that's some edge case type stuff, but it's, there's, there's some power there. I think it's good enough to keep running. You can do stuff like run an expedition map. I didn't run that. It lets you just kind of cycle through Urza Saga where you're like Urza Saga pops, get an expedition map, go get another Urza Saga to keep making constructs for the kind of your long grinding game, which does happen a surprisingly long, surprisingly frequent amount with this deck, which is just like, I need to win the long game. And that's what this deck does really well with things like Luris, with things like Urza Saga, and just the ability to top deck all sorts of different cards that allow you to then cheat the equip cost. Or you get a few Giver of Runes down and you give something protection to get through a wall of blockers where they have a few colors and all you need to do is get that second Giver of Runes down or something like that. So the deck plays really similarly to how it did before, but you have another angle of grind, you have another angle of attack, you have another tutor, which is really advantageous because that lets you then focus on your opening hands having the cheat, which is kind of really key because you can say to yourself, well, I have a Sigarda's Aid and I have a creature and I don't necessarily, necessarily have to have that hammer in hand if I'm mulling to six or something like that because you can say I have... 12 different ways to find a hammer where it's like, I've got Stoneforge, I've got Colossus Hammer, I've got Urza Saga, and I have the ability to to grind my way into the hammer uh, and then cheat it into play or something like that. I want to talk about Esper Sentinel. Yeah, that's, that I was, I was going there next, but yeah, what's your question? Do you love it? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no. I thought on. it was fine. I thought it was fine. I thought, I mean, I honestly thought it was pretty fine. Like, <laughs> like so, good looking? <laughs> <laughs> that art i, I, I mean I, swords. <laughs> maybe it might be the thing where it's like you know what's you know how sometimes like you guys probably don't play a lot of dredge on magic online but dredging on magic online doesn't feel like dredging in paper like, because like it it just it just goes into a big bucket on your graveyard button and you're just like oh welcome i got like 13 cards there but when you do that in paper you appreciate it a lot more and i feel like drawing cards is sometimes the same way a magic online for me where like the card just sort of appears in my tray i didn't have the physical act of drawing the card and placing it into my hand and being like oh yeah i drew that card that felt really good and so i, I think i did draw a certain number of cards off sentinel and the same time it is also a lightning rod at times where it's like okay, well, the, the opponent feels they have to get rid of it. Or sometimes they pay the tax, and that's good too, because it's, right. the tax is their mana. Uh, and it is an artifact, and it does all that kind of stuff, and it's a perfectly fine addition to this deck, but it didn't feel like it busted it open in the same way that Urza Saga kind of just gave me a different angle of winning a game. Like, I'm not winning the game because I was for Sentinel. It is adding value to the deck, which is fine. How often did you search up a Met Knight or an Ornithopter with... Probably, probably less than I should have. 
Um, honestly, like I think there's there are there are a lot of mistakes you can make in this deck because you have a lot of choices or you have a certain number of choices. And so like when do I get that shadow spear? Like I definitely I took out a shadow spear in a matchup and it was just like there's whenever you take out a shadow spear, you want a shadow spear. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like never take out one ups. That's something I've learned. It's always just like, oh, I don't need this because my opponent's playing a combo deck. And then like they have got three creatures on the other side of the battlefield because they're sort of a weird creature-y combo deck or it's like a cascade combo where they have shardless agents resolved or something like that and it's just like well i really wish i had that shadow spear to trample over them but now i've got to attack three times giving them times to find their combo pieces so i talked i think i talked enough about this deck that we've already talked about i I actually have a couple more questions okay please sanctifier and vec it's great um you need to be playing i think i had four pro red creatures Sanctifier on Vec, just having pro black and pro red is just amazing. Like it, that it single handedly won me games against like mono red prowess, and even does a ton of work against is it prowess and Rakdos and Rakdos and Shadow and Shadow. And so, like I think I can see Sanctifier on Vec being one of those cards where you're always going to play it because it's like your core Firewalker, mm-hmm. or it's like your your Ash- I mean, excuse me, your Oriok champion type effect, but sort of has a little bit of extra value because I don't care about gaining life as much. Like I'm not the uh, Heliod combo deck that wants to have the life gain trigger. It's just sort of a high value card that does, it pulls its weight. Uh, and then Burnton Forest Changer is, is just a one mana pro red card that can do a lot of work just buying you time. And you, or you equip, you know, equip a Colossus Hammer to it and swing through a bunch of red creatures that are on the other side of the battlefield, or combine it with, uh, uh, excuse me, Giver of Runes and give it pro whatever else it needs and, and get through, or just to uh, cast it over and over again with Luris. Yeah, right. I mean, that's that's the kind of loop that like long game can do like high value. Like that's the kind of stuff that I even I never got really the chance to, but that's the kind of thing that I didn't even think about because like those are like the small edges. That you can generate with a card like Luris that you can't generate with a lot of other, uh, a lot of other deck, a lot of other, a lot of other cards do not give you the power that Luris gives you. In fact, I think no other card gives you the power that Luris gives you at its cost, especially. Uh, Seal of Cleansing is like fine. It's a, it feels expensive. Mm-hmm. Seal of Cleansing does it feels like it should be like one point five mana instead of two, which is like fine. But Prismatic Ending, I love Prismatic Ending. It's like the first time I really got to sort of play with that card and plays great. Wait, wait, wait. Can we go back? Yeah. You would like disenchant to cost 1.5 nope. mana instead of 2 mana? Yeah, 1.5. <laughs> you, you think that's too cheap? I mean, right. I just think it's it's a lot to ask out of a card yeah. that was an alpha. Yeah, I know. Well, seal, seal of Cleansing is, yeah, you're right. It's basically disenchant, right? It's disenchant, and you get to cast it over and over again with Luris. So, yeah, that's a good point, too. Okay, so much stuff you can do with Luris in this deck. Uh, so the, one of the mistakes I did make a lot, and it's just, just, this is just Shane being out of practice, uh, playing, playing modern instead of historic, is like even though I popped up the little companion window and like had it in my little hand area, there were multiple games where I was like, oh, forgot to put Luris in my hand. Yeah. And then, that, that, that lost me games. Yeah. Like just straight up lost because you're, you're one turn behind. And that's all you need in modern to just blow it. Well, and like, you're like, oh, I don't have anything I can do on turn five. Pass. <laughs> you're like, I oh. need to draw something. You're like, oh, I did have something important I could have done. On it's turn something five. extremely important. Get one of the best creatures in the format into my hand. I, I found that one of the ways I've learned to avoid that over the last year now, maybe it's been less than a year, is just planning my 
sequencing around eventually casting Laris. Yeah. Just like, keeping the, thinking about it all the time. Yeah, like it's just it, I, I try to play it like I'm running a Luris deck first and foremost. It's been more than a year since Luris has been around, by the way. Oh, man. It's been more than a year. Yeah, Luris was in the spring set last year. So what is that? April, March? Oh yeah, it, it came out right after COVID. Yeah. Started. How much longer will it be with us? We'll find out. Not uh, long. I don't know. Long. I don't think very long, but we'll see. So I only I went. 2-3. I went I went 2-0 into 2-3 like you know the feel bad league. You're a pro too. Good job. Yeah, I know. Um but it, it I I really could have been 4-1. I mean, just like a couple of stupid games that I punted just really badly and I was like, "Well, if I had played that one turn differently." But this is not about Shane's bad beat stories. It's more about I think the deck is really good. And I think the the real issue with this deck is it's facing a lot of like it, I guess you could call it splash hate. I mean, even though you are playing Urza Saga, you don't feel like I'm not a food deck. I shouldn't be hurt by this, but like, yeah, you're a, you're an artifact deck with Urza Saga. So all of the the force of vigors, all of the enchantment slash artifact hate out there is hating you too. And so you're not going to love it. You're not going to love Shatterstorms. You're not going to love all that kind of stuff. But when you stick in Urza Saga, and you can grind people out with some constructs, or you you know you top deck that Pure Steel Paladin lets you equip that Colossus Hammer that's been on the battlefield, and win. It's going to feel good, and the, the deck still feels... It's a lot of fun. I now own this deck in paper, and I'm hyped to be able Whoa. to play it. Uh, I get, yeah, I bought Snowforge Mystics again, Dave. No! Um, but anyway... Uh, <laughs> yeah, for how much? <laughs> like, Yeah, how much did you pay? Oh, no, I got I, I got Russian ones from an online friend who's selling out, and I got them for fairly reasonably. Less than English. So anyway, uh, that's my story about Snowforge Mystics. He did not give us a number. How much did you sell your Stoneforge Mystics for? I think I basically ended up equal about <laughs> selling them a year ago and buying them back a year later. When you buy Russian cars, do you pay in rubles or or Bitcoin? Is that is ruble the the currency of Russia? It is, yes. <laughs> in Russia, rubles pay you. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it's a good deck. Uh, enjoy if you like the style of deck, play it. Stan, I want to hear about what you did this this week. Wow, that was a whole lot of content about a deck we've done a whole deck dive on. Thank you, Shane. Weird coming from me, right? So you know, I wanted to do something a little different. For myself, really, and astute listeners might recognize that I've been trying to use these episodes to play some of the decks that I was skeptical about and maybe even poo-pooed a little bit during spoiler season. So for today's episode, I decided to try out this Enchantress, this green-white Enchantress deck that has been popping up in league results and tournaments. I honestly forgot. I, I, I did not look at your point in the notes. I did not realize you played Enchantress. Oh, I played Enchantress. I'm amped. I was I was messaging you guys about it the other day. I don't like, I don't pay attention to your messages. Oh, uh, that explains why I haven't gotten paid back for all the money I've given you over the years. I need that fourteen thousand dollars back. By the way, Dan's like I have the receipts. Here's I bought a Civic. Receipts. I bought a Civic CX. It's a hatchback. Yeah. So I, I like I said I played this deck because not only I wanted to test my own boundaries and try something different that we really haven't been talking about. Um, and, and kind of challenge some of my preconceived notions about this deck when the set was being spoiled. But also, I was under the impression that I probably never really played a deck quite like this. This is a pretty new strategy to modern. Like, there were white-based prison decks in the past that used things like Ghostly Prison to lock out opponents. And this is really leaning into mostly Modern Horizons cards. It's a lot. Yeah, Sanctum Weaver, Sithis, Harvest Hand, Sterling Grove... Solitary Confinement. All of these are really important cards that made this deck possible because they were printed or reprinted in MH2. So I went into this thinking I was going to try something different and fresh. 
broaden my horizons and it just turned out I was playing a prison deck. And it feels like in that regard, figuring out what you're supposed to do with this deck is fairly easy because it's kind of just a race to solitary confinement to make sure you don't lose because that's the best way you have to not lose. I honestly didn't realize that this deck played solitary confinement because all the times I played against it, I've never seen that resolved. Is that always in these decks? I think not only do I think it's in all of these consistently successful decks, like the fourth place deck from the uh, insights 5k that's a solitary confinement deck too actually not only do i think is it consistently in these decks i think it is critical to your plan and you're trying to just get out and protect your solitary confinement as quickly as possible it's you can almost call this green white confinement so explain explain how what this card does for you and then how you win once you have it because i feel like that is the the that's the, the thing that's hard for i think most people perhaps me yes uh you know, that's, that's what's confusing about this deck. Sure, so I'll, card. I'll, I'll read it. Solitary Confinement 2 and a white enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, sack Solitary Confinement unless you discard a card. Skip your draw step. You have Shroud. Also, prevent all damage that would be dealt to you. So your opponents can attack you. It just does no damage. They can't target you with anything. And then... So how are you drawing cards? What you're that's trying to do rub, is really right? offset the potential card disadvantage. And what this deck does in order to offset that disadvantage is it runs four copies of enchantress's presence which is two and a green enchantment when you cast an enchantment draw card along with four copies of sithis harvest hand which is a a two drop green white one two from mh2 whenever you cast an enchantment you gain a life and draw a card and it also runs the test and champion which also draws a card so uh, yeah so some of these decks have satess and champion it's not a stable so first thing you want to do is try to get out these card drawing enchantments they're part of your engine essentially and you also another very important card to your plan is sterling grove i almost feel like this is kind of like a a three card combo where what you are trying to do is get out two sterling groves which are green white enchantment other Uh, enchantments you control the old skull captain exactly (laughs) exactly everybody has shroud now yeah so you get two sterling groves in a solitary confinement and you're Cards can't be targeted, and you can't be targeted with anything because everything has Shroud. And then, ideally, you've got at least one, but preferably, you know, multiple Enchantress's presence or a presence on a Sithis Harvest Hand, and then you're just drawing cards and cards and cards. Solitary Confinement is not what wins you games. It's essentially what keeps you from losing games, or it wins you a game because most savvy opponents just scoop to that because I think the writing is on the wall at that point. But if you really need to win the game, the most common win condition is Destiny Spinner, which is from Theros Beyond Death, one on a green, two, three. It gives creatures and enchantments you control uncounterability, but it also has three and a green target land you control becomes an XX elemental with trample and haste. Trample being really important there, where X is the number of enchantments you control. So you're playing all these enchantments to either deal with your opponent's creatures, protect yourself from losing the game, protect all of your other permanents, and then you make a giant forest that swings for 10. That's it. Not a very disruptive deck. You've got four copies of Anthonice. Sometimes you'll have a Banishing Light. Sometimes, not always, you'll have a Blood Moon. But I often felt when I was playing this deck that I was trying to protect myself more so than trying to disrupt what my opponents are doing. But it's really consistent. A, because it has uh, a because it has eight of these Enchantress Presence effects, but also it has Sanctum Weaver, which is the 
one on a green dork where you add X equal to the number of champions you control. And Sanctum Weaver allows you to just basically cast your whole hand once you get your yeah one, once you get your engine going you're just generating so much value so that's another point where your opponents just eventually scoop to you yeah, this this deck has always felt like an exponential growth deck when i play against it where it's just like piece one piece two piece three 99 pieces yes it's just like the deck just sort of like turns the corner in a very hard way that a lot of other decks can't do the same way yeah one of the other one conditions that this deck sometimes has is Sigil of the Empty Throne, which is a five mana enchantment from, I think, Magic Origins. Maybe it's been printed a few times. But what's neat about that card with Sanctum Weaver is that you can sometimes cast it as early as turn three or four. Just because maybe on turn one, you're playing a Utopia Sprawl, and then on turn two, you did an Anthen Ice or an Abundant Growth. Um, and then if you get a Sanctum Weaver out early, that's tapping for three or four mana incredibly quickly and then you've just won the mana advantage game at that point one of the things that i think this deck was kind of a problem that i had to figure out how to overcome was the fact that it doesn't really have a lot of tutors your only tutor is your sterling grove which you need to sacrifice in order to get another card and i only found myself doing that if say my opponent cast a vindicate on my sterling grove because i didn't have a way to cast two to protect each other and then you just Sterling Grove for a Sterling Grove. Or if you're in a position where you have three of them, you can Sterling Grove for a win condition. Yeah. Sounds right to me. I did not realize this sort of had built-in removal protection, where it's just like, uh, it doesn't say an enchantment card that's not Sterling Grove. Right. You can just be like, yeah, I've got one open mana. I'm going to get another Sterling Grove, my friend. Exactly. One thing that I think is really cool about this deck, and I don't think it's me being some big brain enchantress player, I actually felt that this deck was really easy to pilot. Hmm. Because it kind of does the same thing over and over. Either it's drawing you a ton of cards off of your presence effects, or you're casting, you know, like, on thin ice to delay the game. And then once you start to see that, like, you have Starling Grove to protect all of your stuff, it's, at that point, the game plan sort of emerges before you. So I was really impressed by um, how easy it was to pick up. And I did zero research into this deck, before I actually played it. I just rented and started playing it. Rented League. And it, Done. Yeah, and then it just kind of unfolded onto me. How'd it go? I didn't play a League with it. I didn't play a full League with it. Yeah. I just wanted to get to know it, and I really loved it. One thing that I was kept thinking about, though, was one of Spike's criticisms of all these enchantment cards when we did our set review with him was that this deck is never beating Tron. <laughs> that's right and i think that's true and Did you I face think tron or just like realize that you just wouldn't be able to beat it well i just think you can't really beat karn the great creator ticking up and resetting the game or you can't you can't you can't beat o stone o stone yeah that'd be good too but then i realized that no one's playing tron right now so nope. i don't think that's really yeah. a problem and what's great about this is actually it's good against some of these low to the ground aggro decks because you can slow them down long enough that unless they really tear your hand apart no one can answer solitary confinement. Interesting. Yeah, like what's weird about this deck, and I think um, Jesse in our Slack mentioned this, is that there's just a few cards that exist in the game that, like, what one in a white or two in a white destroy all enchantments. I'm forgetting the name of it. And then there's like a green one that just destroys all enchantments. And there's there's cheap mm-hmm. and effective and 
as soon as this deck is prevalent enough to have people playing this in any amount in their sideboard, the deck is extremely at risk just being hated out. I guess, but you would need a lot of enchantment removal to really disrupt what this deck is doing because it's able to draw so many cards and do its thing so consistently. And I think in some cases this deck is made better by the fact that enchantments are just the hardest permanent to interact with. And the only card I was ever really, really worried about was Vindicate out of an, an Esper opponent. How many of those did you see? I mean, just the one. But it was enough that I realized, like, oh, Vindicate is kind of a problem. Yeah, because it exiles. Any permanent. Yeah. You don't have real recursion, usually, either, in this deck. So if an opponent does manage to answer one of your enchantments, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. You're just moving on. But yeah, you draw I mean, so many cards. Unless you're playing Hall of Heliod's Judgment, which likewise is not a staple for some reason. Yeah, that's a surprise. It seems like that's a card that should be here as like a one-of just for when you go really long and need to find something. Or Yeah, I, I mean, ha- being able to play a turn one Utopia Sprawl is really important. Ah, yeah, yeah. So you have so many forests, basically. Right. All, all of your, most of your lands tap for green. You have two planes, but otherwise most of your lands just tap for green. So is this the deck that because we're not seeing that suspend return all enchantments from the graveyard to the to the battlefield? If it's not even in this deck sideboard, we're just this de- that card's not being played. I kind of think so. Yeah, just not where you want to be doing. It's not going to. It's not how you're going to win the game. Yeah, and and you don't need it. You don't need recursion uh, unless you're in an environment where you're playing against a lot of enchantment hate. Your enchantments mostly stick around. I don't know. I think this deck is cool. I think it's, you know, prison-esque where it's probably one that certain pilots will want to master and it'll kind of become an iconic strategy that will linger, especially because enchantments are so hard to deal with. But maybe in a control-heavy or in a Tron-heavy meta game, I can see this really struggling. But it being a pretty viable option to deal with maybe some of these super aggressive red decks in particular. Yeah. I mean... When it's been played against me, and looking at these deck lists, it just it looks like Bogles, but not an aggressive deck. It's just sort of like it's like the value Bogles, where it's like I have a lot of enchantments, I'm drawing a lot of cards, and you just can't recover from this. Mm-hmm. That's just, but like but like I think you said, it, so I think it plays very similarly, where it's like I have these pieces that do similar things. There's various cards that draw me cards. There's various cards that ramp my mana. There's various things that take advantage of having other enchantments, and then I'm just going to win the game. And I I think that that's just kind of... Some people like decks like this because they get to do the same thing. This is like a deck that I can imagine people foiling out, where it's just like, it's it's fairly cheap. Uh, I'm going to get these cool, fancy pieces. I'm going to go to F&M and have a good old time. You sure are. And just really annoy some people, like a lot. We yeah. play this. Yeah, deck was cool. Probably not going to be a tier one staple. I was impressed, but not fully surprised to see it appear in the top eight of the Insights Esports. But I think I wouldn't expect to see it consistently in top eight challenge results, so to speak. Maybe top 32. It's going to be in leagues forever. But it's it's probably the best enchantment deck that I've ever seen as well. You know, even those old suppression field ghostly prison decks were super dinky. Yeah, well, I when you said that, though, it made me think about Bogles. Right. And but that's that's an aggro deck. That's prowess. It's different. Yeah, it is kind of prowessy more so. So maybe the best uh enchantment control deck, enchantment prison deck that you've ever seen. Yes. That makes sense. Totally. Totally. And and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that solitary confinement does what a lot of those old prison pieces 
do, but in one card, where it's less about getting like a variety of prison enchantments to deal with what your opponent is doing. It's more about just getting your solitary confinement and finding a way to protect it. What do you think about this as a budget deck? Well, aside from it's the eight hundred dollars. <laughs> well, aside from the mana base, though. I mean, it looks like six hundred to me. So I'm lo- I'm looking at gold at goldfish right now, and it says six hundred dollars. And that's and goldfish is usually a little bit higher than you can find it on like yeah. TCG Low or something. Three hundred dollars of that is at least in the mana base, mostly between four windswept swept heath and four prismatic vistas. The actually, according to goldfish, the most expensive d- card in this deck is. Did you know that Utopia Sprawl is $17 a copy uh-huh. right now? Pretty good right now. That's yeah. the most expensive card in the deck. And, and that's another example of doesn't see a lot of reprints. It depends on the version. I, you're looking at the one I listed in the docs, but you know sometimes this deck is playing Greater Oromancy. Yeah, that got that's which is an eighty dollar right card now. too, and that's your extra copy of Sterling Grove. It's not quite as good as Sterling Grove because it doesn't fetch in response to removal, but it's nice to have that fifth copy. Yeah, Greater Oromancy, it's a super popular EDH card, and it was $50, and now it's spiked up to 80 Right. And, you know, sometimes these decks play Blood Moons, which I think is like 10 bucks right now, but that, that can go up over time. Yeah. yeah. I'm surprised Blood Moon has not gone up more. I think it's just a consequence of having so many printings, because people haven't... It's, there's a lot of red decks, and Blood Moon, I think, is pretty good right now mm-hmm. in the meta. <laughs> Dave, your question is interesting. What do I think of this as a budget deck? I didn't really think of this as a budget deck. I, mean, I think for modern, it kind of might be. Yeah. Sad but true. If you take out the fetches, or if you already have Winsep Heaths, but you don't have Prismatic Vistas, you might be able to put the, a version of this deck together pretty cheaply. Uh, can't have Greater Oromancy. Probably can't get Utopia Sprawl. I mean, you have to get, you have to get Utopia Sprawls to make this deck work, so maybe you already have those, but, you know. I think that's a really interesting way to, to frame it, and I, I can see it being that. Like, I can see this being the type of deck that sort of you can have for a really long time, because they don't print busted enchantments all that often. Right. And it, right now, it's, in a, it's a pretty elegant build right now, where it has a really clearly defined plan that I think, by using Solitary Confinement to, for such a powerful ability, it's unlikely that that's the card that ever gets outmoded. Or same with Starling Grove, like a protection spell that you can use to fetch more enchantments thereafter is unlikely to get outmoded. So you probably have this very resilient shell that's resilient to power creep, yeah. So maybe this is an enchantment, uh, a budget deck that you can kind of have a functional version that you improve over time and can maybe count on it to actually stay pretty, pretty consistent. Yeah. It, it is design and its functionality. Yeah. Just beware of Tron, beware of control. But if you're worried about aggro, I actually think this is a, the reason why I think this did well in an Insights environment was because Insights was probably a very aggressive metagame yeah and it did well kind of for the same reason that adnaz does mm-hmm. well because it, it happens to be a deck that is set up main deck already to deal with aggro and then win right through some kind of combo ish ending right that's cool all right we did it we talked about decks in person yeah face Man, to face that was fun should we do this every week yeah i'll just fly in i mean use that use that patreon money <laughs> just fly you back to yeah just fly back to yeah, to be uncomfortable in Dave's base and being like, I don't know how to be in person with anybody anymore. Yeah, next time I come to Dave's basement, I'm wearing a fur coat though because it's it's brisk, baby. It's very cold. What what temperature is it here? We're now? at 65 now. Hey, that's that's balmy. We've gone up five degrees. Yeah, because I opened the recording. windows and let the heat in. <laughs> that does wrap up this week's episode. Thanks, guys, for doing this in person with us. Thank you, listeners, for bearing with our unusual audio. I'm sure it sounds fine. 
I'm sure it doesn't, but we'll talk about that more later. Different doesn't mean worse. Correct. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question of the podcast, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word. You can email the dive down at gmail.com. You can also support the show via Patreon, joining our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. Join at any tier. Have fun in the conversation. See decks. Get into the marketplace. I've been buying cards from our patrons. Sell cards to the hosts of the dive down only on Patreon. Yeah, we have our buy list prices uh, posted up. <laughs> Anytime you want to check them out, you can just come and hit it up. It's all automated. Dive down bots. Dive down on, bots. Uh, on MTGO. This episode and this show would not be possible without the support of Manatraders.com. They made it possible to rent all of the cards we talked about today, and you can rent them too. Get better, support the show while playing Magic with a Manatrader subscription. And if you use promo code THEDIVEDOWN2021, all one word, you'll get 15% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Knower and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and spend some time with your friends in a cool basement on a warm summer day. Make eye contact. Have audio problems. Hug someone. That's right.